Good afternoon. This is WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You're listening to Indigo Radio, making connections and deepening understanding. I'm here in the studio today with Anna, and I'm Corey. Hi, everyone. Uh, last week on Indigo Radio, you listened to a show, a special show that was created by Guilford Central School's fourth grade about their project, Voices of the People of Guilford. You can still see the Voices of the People of Guilford quilt hanging at 118 Elliott Street. And after the hanging at 118 Elliott Street, it's going to be presented at the Vermont Welcome Center. So if you're coming into Vermont, check out the Guilford Central School's Voices of the People quilt. Today... Co-host Becca Polk interviewed Vijay Prashad a few weeks ago to discuss food sovereignty, struggles around water, U.S. imperial wars, and how these larger forces impact the lives of humans throughout the world. Vijay Prashad is an Indian historian, journalist, author, as well as one of the social research directors at the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research Director. <laughs> Last night, Vijay Prashad was moderating at a panel that was at UMass Amherst. A lot of us at um, Indigo Radio were there, and the panel was called Not Backing Down, and it was voices that have been, um, sh- have been shut down whenever talking about uh, Palestine and um, pro-Palestine rights. So some of the voices that were there were date. And help me out here, Anna, if I'm missing any. Dave Zirin, who is a, is he a sports commentator yeah, at The Nation magazine. Yeah, he writes magazine? for The Nation. Yeah, who's a Jewish um, uh, writer. Who, and then He does a lot on sports and social justice around sports. Yeah, that's um, great. Mark Lamont Hill was there. Also who, awesome. Very well known recently for being fired from CNN for talking out about Palestinian rights. And he's also a <clears throat> professor. Um, and Linda Sassour was there. And then Roger, Roger Waters, Pink Floyd, was there. He uh, read quite a lengthy poem. And uh, we're going to start this show by playing a song from Rebel Diaz, Guilty. And the cool thing about Rebel Diaz is that they're going to be here on Friday doing a show and workshop at uh, the show will be at the Brattleboro Memorial Library at 8 p.m. Yeah, and doors open at 730. So that's a that's a free show. It's open to all kids are welcome to that. Uh, there's also a before the show from four to five thirty Rebel Rebel Diaz is going to be leading a workshop called Hip Hop versus Neoliberalism. And that is also free. That's going to be at uh, the Cusack uh, Conference Room, which is behind the Brattleboro Union High School. Yeah, it's in the Career Center by the middle school. So you go around the building and come up to the top. And so it should be pretty cool. Uh, here's, a, here's a sample of uh, what Rebel DS sounds like. The U.S. has the fastest growing prison population in the world. Well, it's like the real estate boom. <laughs> Except, of course, the problem with real estate, you eventually run out of land. <laughs> you never run out of people to put in prison. Guilty. Guilty. The 
capitalist system of America, the U.S. military, the FBI, CIA, ATF, ICE, Homeland Security, and the neighborhood police. They stole three-fourths of Mexico in 1848, abducted Africans and then sold them slaves. Genocide against the natives, and for that we give thanks. Wrote their history books and made themselves great. There's two types of crime. Power and survival. Crimes that deal with power are the ones you might not find, dude. Look at the trillions that were stolen from the Wall Street bailout. And Mumia still stuck in a jailhouse. They sick, they killed little Ayanna Jones. He was seven years old, man, the story gets old. Look at the wars, look at colonialism. Look at the trade agreements and the profits from their prisons. We know the aggressor. They train them in Georgia, at the school of the Americas, where they teach torture. My father's a survivor, he talks about it often. Thousands disappeared, no funeral or coffin. And I can't harm them without the charge of terrorism. But they the terrorists, I charge their whole system. From the filthy politicians to the lying professor. Guilty as charged, we convict the oppressors. Yeah, we plead our case, they. To the crooks, stole the book, they. In the court of the people, we deem them. No immunity clause, no impunity, no, put them behind bars, get them all, the killer cops, the gentrifiers on the block, the CIA black ops, undercover, overseas and on your corner, at the border, big brother trying to control us, hold up, what is we facing, guilty by association, that's how they profile racially, slavery been abolished, that's common knowledge, said they put a clause in, see it's legal if you're locked in, to keep making profit, they keep wages low, by keeping a sector of society out of work Unemployed, roam the streets, precincts deployed More police, capture and contain Ain't much change, racist capitalists Ain't the keepers in chains I rest my case, they Guilty. To them crooks, stole the book, they Guilty. In the court of the people, we deem them Guilty. Pay their debt to society Return what they been robbing, robbing, robbing this is WVW, Brattleboro Community Radio, and you're listening to Indigo Radio on the air every Sunday at noon. And this is Anna. I am a local educator and work with the Spark Teacher Institute, also a grad student at UMass. And I'm here with Corey, who's a um, teacher over in Guilford, and also with the Spark Teacher Institute. And Kavya is also in the studio. Hi, Kavya. <laughs> I don't know if that's on. <laughs> And that was Rebel Diaz that you were listening to. Rebel Diaz is a political hip-hop duo out of the Bronx, New York, and Chicago. And they are Rod Stars and G1. And they use their music as an organizing tool to spread knowledge about injustice. And they are all over the place right now. They're actually touring in Australia. And from there, they're coming to Vermont to visit us. We are so excited that they are going to be opening up our Stand Up Fight Back conference. And all of this information can be found on our Facebook page. If you go to Indigo Radio, we'll be posting that. Um, so we'll make sure that you're able to find that information. If anyone has any questions, they can email us at brattleborosolidarity at gmail.com. And we're excited to have them. So they'll, have, they'll be doing a workshop, and then there's going to be a concert at 8 p.m. at the library. Corey, 
Yeah, so I'm just downloading this uh, interview with Vijay Prashad. Uh, it's going to open when complete. So maybe while we're waiting for that, we can tell you a little bit more about the panels that are going to be happening at the um, at the event this weekend. Yeah, so we have uh, a number of things happening. Rebel Diaz, that's, as we said, is the opening. And then Saturday is the full-day education conference called Stand Up, Fight Back. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be opening up the conference at 9.30. And again, that's at, um, behind, it's at the Career Center behind BUHS, correct? <clears throat> is it in the Cusick room as yeah. well? Yeah. So the, the whole Q- conference, the whole day is there. So it's at the, yeah, it's in the Career Center building. The one that's attached to the middle school, you go upstairs to that top room. I'm sure there will be signs and things when you get there. We'll have lots of signs to get everyone. No one is going to get lost. <laughs> but uh, there's also lots of parking, which is good. And the the day opens at 9.30. And we'll have an opening. And then at 9.45, we have the Beehive, Collect- Beehive Collective. There's going to be a member from that collective group leading a workshop. And they do a lot of artwork uh, specifically what they're going to be doing is Mesoamerica Resiste, which explores the legacy of colonialism and the impacts of free trade policies and resource extraction on communities and ecosystems throughout Mesoamerica. And um, these stories really help us to make connections between the struggles for justice in our own communities and those that are happening all over the world, which is something I think Indigo Radio often um, we really strive to do, and Brattleboro Solidarity is making connections uh, happening both locally, locally and globally around uh, exploitation and oppression within our world. So that is going to be the opening uh, Saturday, and then after that at eleven is our keynote speaker Fred Magdoff. And his uh, talk is entitled Consequences of the Capitalist System Toward a Vision of Collective Emancipation. And Fred's been here with us before. If you don't know him, he is uh, Emeritus Professor of Plant and Soil Science at the University of Vermont up in Burlington. His, uh, he's done a lot of work around soil science, soil science agriculture, uh, looking at food and production economics and the environment and relating that to the uh, U.S. economy. And he's going to be here with us. He recently, he had a 2017 book called Creating an Ecological Society, which he wrote with Chris Williams. Uh, I've seen him speak before. I saw him speak last summer. And as a teacher, I've actually used some of his writings with some of my students. So we're really excited to have Fred. Uh, he, like I said, he came a couple of years ago to the Spark Teacher Institute, and I think it's great that he's going to be here again. Uh, I think a lot of people in this area would be interested in seeing him, a lot of the groups doing work around climate justice uh, and how that's impacting our communities. And Fred has a lot of experience in that and a lot of things to say. Uh, so that's going to be great. The other thing we want to mention, and a shout out to everyone's books, because Nancy at Everyone's Books is going to be there and she's going to have a table full of amazing books for everyone to purchase. And that the purchase of those books, of course, helps your local bookstore. Also, some of those proceeds are going to help offset some of the costs of this conference. 
Um, and we are going to have two of Fred Magdoff's books there. So it's great that they're going to be there. Um, and I think what we'll do is we have the rest of the panels to talk about, but I think we're going to go to a song. Yeah, let's go to Taina Isili, who will also be at the event this weekend. <clears throat> this is a song um, by her called Freedom featuring Michael Reyes. Taina Seeley is a New York-based Puerto Rican singer, songwriter, band leader, and activist carrying on the tradition of her ancestors, fusing past and present struggles into one soulful and defiant voice. Her newest artistic work is an energetic fusion of powerful vocals laid over Afro, Latin, reggae, and rock sounds. Residing in Albany, New York, Taina Seeley performs her social justice songs as a solo artist and will and also with her dynamic eight-piece band, bringing love, resistance, and ancestral remembrance to venues, festivals, conferences, and political events across the globe. Taina Seeley's voice exudes strength of spirit, filling listeners with the fervor for freedom and inspiring audiences to dance to the rhythm of rebellion. So here's a song by Taina Seeley, Freedom. Freedom of the mind, freedom of the soul, freedom of the heart, and freedom that we go. Battle for the lives and the folks that we know. Battle for the lives and the folks that we know. 
for the seeds in the future that we sow. Plant them seeds so we can see them grow. Lightning through the sky so everybody knows. Thunder crash loud, live from their flow. Can't tell the spirit of the fire of the soul. Breaking down the laws of the new Jim Crow. You're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. That was Taina Asili. Uh, the song is Freedom featuring Michael Reyes. So we have the interview that co-host Becca Polk has done with Vijay Prashad. And we're going to go right into the playing that interview. Between movements. And um, in my thoughts, it requires an analysis of what are the dominant forces in our world, as well as ways to resist. And I know you've been traveling and writing and talking with people all over the world, and I'm wondering if you could just start out by, like, what are some of the connections that you see in places of war or increased privatization, environmental degradation, and the criminalization of the poor? What do you see as some of those underlying dominant forces? Well, you know, it's a very big question and the answer generally would have to be on a very big scale but I think we can start somewhere else which is you know wherever you go I think people have the feeling that they are unable to make their own lives you know in other words um, the general sentiment is one of suffocation Uh, you see this in places like say Venezuela where there's you know increased embargo against basically everyday life You've seen this in Cuba, of course, for 60 years. But, you know, these are the most, I suppose, dramatic instances. Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, where there's a direct embargo, or where there are, you know, really quite brutal wars, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's been in the Sudan, or in Iraq. These are all the most obvious examples, but less obvious and far more common is a general sense of suffocation. Um, You know, in the 1980s, in Burkina Faso, uh, the young leader of the country, Thomas Sankara, he was, in a sense, you know, a very prophetic voice because he talked about this sense of suffocation. You know, he basically laid out uh, an agenda saying that, you know, countries like Burkina Faso, which are the norm, not the exception, countries like that are just not able to drive a policy. You know, they're not able to become uh, food uh, secure, food sovereign. They're not able to 
produce policies in the world which help them trade goods and so on. You know, at one point he made a very clever statement. He said, you know, you don't believe in imperialism. He asked people who, you know, sort of sniff at that idea thinking it's anachronistic. He said, you don't believe in imperialism? Just look at your plate. You know, that was his answer. Look at your plate. Look at what you eat. Everything is imported. And you just feel this sense that nobody's listening to you. And, you know, again, whether the conversation is happening by bombs falling on your head or somebody dismissing your representatives in a trade meeting, there is this, I think, quite global sentiment of hopelessness and, you know, being silenced. I think this is really what connects people. And what would you say are some of those things that make it so that people can't have food sovereignty or that people are silenced at those trade meetings? Well, you know, this issue of food sovereignty, I think, is a key issue. Um, it's quite an obscene thing that billions of people, and I, I mean billions of people, uh, go to bed every night hungry. I mean, that is an obscenity. You know, that that's an act, I would say, akin to the worst kind of terrorist act, and worse, because it happens silently and every day. And so what we have is we know that globally we produce more food than we require. You know, uh, this, is, this is down to statistics. You know, more food is produced uh, than people need uh, to fulfill their needs, and yet that food is not getting on the plates of billions of people. And why is this so? I mean, it's maybe two or three different things. The first thing is that it's really quite sad that the reason food doesn't get on somebody's plate is that they can't afford it. You know, in other words, poverty is what is generating hunger. And then poverty itself is not a condition. You know, poverty is something produced. What produces poverty? Well, we have an economic system that basically allows very small numbers of people to control capital and control vast amounts of capital and make decisions for that capital uh, which are against the needs of human beings. I mean, for instance, right now, the very few people who own the bulk of the world's capital have decided not to invest in the world. You know, they're holding it in hedge funds, they're holding it in tax havens, you know, almost trillions of dollars held in tax havens. And this money, this capital, this socially produced wealth has been removed from basic economic activity. So very few people are making decisions for the billions on the planet uh, without consultation. There's no democracy here. And what this means is they're making decisions which is increasing the impoverishment of hundreds of millions of people per year, which means people don't have money. They're poor so they don't have money they can't eat. That's really the core reason why you see the reproduction of hunger one generation after the next. The second reason is there's a major agrarian crisis that's been uh, ongoing for the last four decades at least, which is to say we've increased mechanization of farming. You have much more uh, you know, fertilizer, pesticide, and high-intensity seed-driven farming. This kind of farming displaces hundreds of millions of people from fields. They become essentially, uh, if they can find work, they become agricultural laborers. And they work for giant corporations, which are using, you know, the economies of scale to produce large amounts of uh, monocrops, like, you know, soy or certain kind of wheat. And this displacement of people off the land is really one of the core reasons 
for hunger because you know we're seeing this great transformation of people moving from rural areas into urban areas where they are of course as i said poor and therefore can't buy food because they don't have access to land they can't even grow their own food so you know this lack of food sovereignty i think is should be if we were living in a planet where democracy was something taken seriously this should set the agenda uh, for the world community at this time how do we tackle the fact that the people of the world are getting increasingly impoverished and this impoverishment finds expression in hunger and there's no solution for this it's creating desolation it's creating anger it's creating hopelessness i'm wondering too like one of the things that we see so often living in the united states are these perpetual wars that are happening somewhere else there's numerous examples of the us intervening militarily in other countries and the longest ongoing us wars are still occurring in afghanistan and iraq and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um both why you think those these wars are happening but also what are how are people resisting on the ground well you know war is an interesting event um it's an interesting thing that happens and one has to wonder why is it that in this time with such multilateral institutions as the united nations and so on why do wars continue you know while you're speaking to me the israeli air force is bombing gaza again this is in the run up to uh, israel's election in early april so wh- why is israel bombing gaza why is the united states at war in afghanistan and in iraq i mean there is a quick answer people give but really behind all the you know immediate surface answers whether it's oil or land or whatever it might be behind all that is a very simple uh, you know thing that we should think about and that's the arrogance of certain parts of the world you know they assume these parts of the world that there is no dialogue with lesser people that there is no negotiation that there's no space for a settlement uh, between different peoples who disagree on something quite fundamentally you know for instance um when the united states experienced the very major attack on september 11th of 2001 the afghan government was approached and asked uh, will you turn over osama bin laden who was seen to be the mastermind of that attack on the united states and the afghan government at the time said look we can turn him over but you have to first provide a warrant and ask for his extradition because there's a process for this and the bush administration said look i do you turn him over now or we're bombing you now imagine this imagine if we go back to september october of 2001 and if the united states said okay you know afghanistan you are a government on decent standing in the world we're going to play the game we're going to file an extradition warrant we're going to turn over information we're going to treat you like you know another country in the world uh, like say great britain or france i mean you know when these countries have people that the americans want extradited for instance mark rich and the swiss government a process was you know taken in hand and so on now i'm not saying that the taliban government is one that should have necessarily been taken as seriously say as the government of pakistan or india or whatever but on the other hand there was a process but you see there's no need for a process when you are the united states there's an arrogance you say either you do what we say or we're going to bomb you similarly with iraq i mean here's a situation 
where you had uh, accusations made about weapons of mass destruction. The United Nations goes in. They basically explore the whole country. They say, look, we can't find any weapons of mass destruction. Here's the report. You know, my name is Hans Blick. I'm the head of the team, and I'm telling you there, is, there are no weapons of mass destruction. The United States says, we don't care about that report. We're going to bomb them anyway. I mean, this core issue of arrogance and the lack of desire to listen to and negotiate with people who are seen as lesser, this is an old colonial flaw in humanity, and it needs to be talked about openly. You know, it's not enough to, to just say, well, it's about oil. It's not just about oil. It's about colonial arrogance. And on the ground, of course, there's resistance. But you've got to understand it's extraordinarily uneven and asymmetrical. I mean, when the Palestinians are being bombed by Israeli fighter jets, many of these jets, either from the United States or produced with U.S. technology, I mean, what can the Palestinians do? They make homemade rockets. They fire them across the border. Those homemade rockets, you know, often wear off course, hit civilians and so on. Terrible, uh, you know, uh, situation uh, where you have one party able to basically wipe out another. And so in places like Iraq, yes, there was resistance, quite fierce resistance. But the cost paid by the Iraqi people is immense. You know, it, it's nothing near the cost that the Americans paid. The Iraqis will pay the cost for generations, this trauma. You know, every Iraqi I know has somebody in their family who was directly either hit by, uh, you know, some kind of gunfire or a improvised, you know, explosive device. I mean, these are not combatants. These are civilians. You know, civilian families were disrupted in Iraq. Uh, no American civilian families were disrupted. There were military personnel who were hurt. And, of course, that has an impact on American civilian life when their loved ones return from war. But you've got to understand that in Iraq, the entire society was traumatized by that war. And so people do resist in different ways. But I don't want to exaggerate that. I want to put, you know, I think on the record this idea that that war has traumatized an entire country. And I don't think it's an easy escape for the Iraqi people. Absolutely not. You and I were... So you're listening to Indigo Radio. Right now you're listening to an interview with uh, Vijay Prashad. And we're going to take a break from the interview and play you another song by Rebel Diaz, Which Side Are You On? Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on, my God? Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on? See, I gotta draw a line, I can't take it no more If you ain't down with revolution, what you waiting for? Making money for suckers and not communities poor Ripping flags off of coffins, man, this ain't our war Colonize and terrorize by the world's biggest killers The U.S. government, the biggest weapon and drug dealers Filling prisons with children, incarcerating the future MySpace and Facebook got us stuck on computers Stuck on stupid bumping music that's abusive to the shorties And the nonsense that you're spitting, they just listening, absorbing I've been dormant, I've been Working. I'm a giant, I'm ready I'm with the Apple in Oaxaca and we hold the machetes I rock hard like Palestinian children holding slingshots I'm with every single kid that's down for hip-hop For the culture, the life, what it really stands for This music is resistant, it's the voice of the poor I'm on the side of the workers, the teachers, the lunch ladies On the streets with brown mommies raising our brown babies I'm with youth organizers cleaning up the Bronx River I'm like Jaime Escalante when I stand and deliver I'm with Evo Morales, man, he running Bolivia to 
distribution of the land so we can all live bigger. I'm with Fugo and Fidel, Grandmaster and Melly Mel. I'm with the Panthers up in Queens, justice for Sean Bell. I'm with Camacho Negron, I'm with Ojeda Rios. Freedom for Oscar Lopez, it's time to get in the pill. I'm with a blue Jamal, I'm with a side of Shakur. I'm with the compas in the mall, can he get in a penny more? WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks everyone's books for their support of this station. And we're back. This is a reminder you're listening to Indigo Radio, uh, deepening understanding and making connections. And we're going to continue an interview that Becca Polk has done with Vijay Prashad, who is an Indian historian, journalist, and author. Uh, Vijay Prashad is talking about food sovereignty, struggles, and water. U.S. imperialist wars and how the larger forces impact the lives of humans throughout the world. So I'm going to continue this interview. That I want to put, you know, I think on the record this idea that that war has traumatized an entire country. And I don't think it's an easy escape for the Iraqi people. Absolutely not. You and I were talking earlier and you asked this question of how do we pick up the pieces from war? And I'm wondering 
aside from the horrific destruction of military weapons, what are some of the other impacts of people in Iraq, uh, for example, as the war continues? Or in Yemen, we could talk about. Well, you know, it's interesting when you're in the United States and you go over to a friend's house and it's about time for them to put their children to sleep. There's a huge premium put on being quiet, you know. We need quiet, we need calm, we need to read our children a storybook, uh, they have to have a bath, there's this, you know, regimen that takes place in most households, and then, you know, the lights go out and there's silence and so on. I mean, what a privilege that is, because, you know, when you travel to places like Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and you experience how families, years on end, have to deal with noise, you know, I, I just, I can't explain it. I mean, you know, the, there is no silence. There was no silence uh, in places like Baghdad during the war. There is no silence in many parts of Syria, even as the war is winding down. You know, loud explosions. The bombings often happen at night. When the U.S. Uh, bombs a country, they bomb at night. And that bombing is so extraordinarily loud. You know, the, the debris, the, the dust produced by you know, uh, the bombs, when, when Gaza is bombed, it's such a small area, you know, about just a you know, few hundred square meters, uh, 2.2 million people living there. Just recently, the Israelis bombed a multi-story building. The debris from that building, the dust, just covers an entire neighborhood. The noise is so loud. And, you know, that's what I mean by the trauma. It's not just the trauma of somebody dying or the trauma of fearing you're going to die. And generation has been raised in this noise. You know, I mean, here you are worrying about just a door closing and your child waking up. Meanwhile, children have been going to sleep, grasping their parents, shrieking, you know, because of the noise. These are things that I can tell you from experience. And I can tell you that journalists don't often report on this, on, on the way an entire generation is traumatized, you know, from, as I said, the noise, from the dust. And not only are they traumatized, that dust, the debris, is deeply toxic. You know, in parts of Fallujah, Ramadi, Baghdad, the cancer rates for children are extraordinarily high. And some of this is because the United States used depleted uranium shells uh, when they bombed Fallujah and Ramadi. Some of this, but it's not just that. I mean, you just even drop a conventional bomb in a neighborhood. You know, there's asbestos in buildings. Uh, there's all kinds of toxic things that go into the air. Uh, bombing is incredibly dangerous, debilitating. The noise and the dust, these are things that I want to underline, you know, that when you have a civilization like Iraq mercilessly bombed, after all the campaign was called shock and awe, mercilessly bombed, there's going to be one or two generations of Iraqi children scarred from this. It's going to be very hard to walk away from this into any semblance of normality. You mentioned the media, and one of the things that's not often talked about in the media is, um, like, people coming together in ordinary ways. And you recently visited uh, Caracas for the International Assembly of Peoples, and um, I believe there were about 500 people from 87 countries, and I'm wondering... If you can talk a little bit about that and some of the connections that were made amongst groups from all over the world. Well, you know, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's a very long story, and, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story. But, um, you know, when the uh, Soviet Union collapsed and 
um, it appeared at the time that there was no alternative to this sort of bureaucratic capitalism, uh, to uh, democracy, which is a shell of democracy and so on. At the time, um, uh, you know, different groups formed a process in Brazil called the World Social Forum. This was directly in response to the World Economic Forum held in Davos, Switzerland. But, you know, over the years, the World Social Forum hasn't really lived up to its uh, potential, uh, largely because, you know, it's hugely dominated by individuals who went to have a look and, and participate, also NGOs and so on. didn't really have a political edge to it. Even the slogan seemed rather anodyne, you know, another world is possible. Well, certainly it's possible, it could be fascism. You know, it's not a clear slogan. And so, uh, about maybe five, six, seven years ago, uh, in Brazil, there was a meeting called the Dilemmas of Humanity, where there was a serious discussion about reviving something much more, perhaps, pointed than the World Social Forum. And out of that discussion uh, came this, this, you know, global project called the International Assembly of the Peoples. And for the last several years, there's been regional meetings of the Assembly in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, in the United States, in South America, many, many regional meetings to build up to uh, the meeting to be held in Caracas. Well, the meeting was to have been a very large meeting of, you know, close to maybe a few thousand delegates. Now, not individuals, but delegates from political and social movements, trade unions, peasant movements, political parties, and so on. In other words, people who were to come there as delegates of movements rather than as individuals or from NGOs and so on. So this was to have happened in Caracas last year, actually. And because of the very deep attack on Venezuela uh, in the last, you know, maybe eight, nine months, uh, the meeting was postponed. And instead of solidarity meeting with just 500 people was to be held in Caracas. And that's what I went for, uh, the solidarity meeting. It was very interesting. I mean, I'd like to say that at the meeting, one saw people from small political formations coming from, say, Jamaica to, you know, people coming from the Communist Party of Nepal. There's a range of different political organizations there. Uh, the, the meetings were quite rich. Uh, but more than anything else, I think there was a quite clear understanding from, you know, these uh, movements around the world that what was happening in Caracas was really something that had to be resisted, you know. This idea, this colonial arrogance that we will tell you what to do. You know, somehow that Marco Rubio, Senator Marco Rubio from Florida is the, you know, apostle of, of uh, what's decent and good in the planet Earth. And you don't have to talk to a poor black woman in a communa in, in Caracas and ask her for her opinion. Because her opinion, of course, is not as important as that of, as that of a U.S. senator. I'm wondering... If you if you could talk about the situation of water around the world and how people what you know what's happening to the water in places like Gaza or Venezuela or even uh, Flint, Michigan, for example. Well, you know, we at the Tricontinental, uh, the Institute for Social Research, we did a dossier on cities without water. That was actually our second dossier, and what we were seized by was the fact that Cape Town in South Africa and Sao Paulo in Brazil were coming close to being exactly that, which is cities without water. They were running out of water. Now, wh why would a modern city run out of water? It's, it's extraordinary. 
what's going on i mean is this entirely because of changes in you know the atmosphere and climate because of the carbon civilization or is there more to it than that well i mean it's a complex story some of that some of it is this carbon civilization detritus but there's also i think quite simple examples you know um in many cases in the last 40 years public infrastructure has been allowed to basically wither you know um investments in public infrastructure just haven't been made so that in cape town for instance the water pipes have been leaking you know they've been leaking up to perhaps 50% of the water coming out of the lakes it's extraordinary you know huge waste of water why why are public investments not made in infrastructure well because you know we believe that if you ruin public infrastructure as much as possible you can then make an argument to privatize everything you know there's no point in investing in public infrastructure and making it good much better to make it appear to be a complete failure and then you turn around and you look at nestle or one of these other companies and you deliver everything to them you know this has been essentially the game uh, that municipalities and governments have played alongside uh, big water corporations you know uh, it's not just nestle by the way there are so many of them uh, and many of them it turns out are french uh, so there's your high french culture um what we find what we find with this this attempt to basically scuttle public infrastructure and turn it over to private hands is that you know people are not happy with what's going on they they don't want this they would like their water to be turned into utilities you know they would like uh, the water not to be controlled by the private sector and you know this is in places where there's no war where there are wars i mean gaza is just a calamity it's an open sore of inhumanity i mean what what the israelis have done is every time they bomb gaza they bomb water supplies they bomb in other words wells they bomb water uh, purification places they bomb switch plants they bomb anything that looks like its infrastructure power plants and so on i mean this itself is a un designated war crime and it is never going to be investigated you know just a few weeks ago the un human rights commission's panel of inquiry on the shootings at the great march of return uh, returned a report suggesting that war crimes were being committed but then all they could say is the israeli government has to investigate it i mean you're asking the israeli government in this case to investigate itself it's not going to happen and so the bombing of say water supplies in places like gaza or the deliberate neglect of water in places like flint i mean they are connected in a way but there is a great difference i mean this deliberate neglect uh, is to basically produce the conditions for privatization uh, and the bombing is essentially a war crime that's to deny people water to make their life conditions so bad that they decide to migrate uh, from where they live I mean one could make the argument that the attack on flint is a kind of war and this idea of not investing public um money into infrastructure as a way to privatize I'm wondering how you connect that to what's happening with education around the world Yeah I mean this is a good uh, question I, we haven't looked at this directly I know the literature on the kind of evisceration of public education is very good and just from experience in the case of india for example uh, we see a direct attack on two fold against public 
or government-funded educational institutions. One of the attacks is on the grounds of cutting funds, cutting fellowships, uh, cutting, you know, freezing salaries for teachers, and basically, you know, drying up the funds for public education. The second is that the government has gone after uh, politics on public or government, you know, institutions. So, you know, you've got to know places like India, in South Africa, places around the world, uh, public or government universities have been, in a sense, the embryo of politics. You know, it's there that young people uh, join student unions, they become politicized, they learn and experience politics, and then after that they enter political life, many of them. You know, many of them become political and, and experience politics through uh, student unions. Well, in places like India, again, South Africa and other places, there's an attack on politics on the campus. They're making the argument that students have to politicize campuses, students should spend more time studying, less time being political. And by doing this, by cutting or attacking the politics of campus, the main resistance against privatization is being destroyed. You know, that, that's these two uh, things are happening simultaneously. The cutting of funding to the institution and then the attack at politics in the institution, including teachers' unions, are being attacked. And as they do this, of course, the ground is set uh, once more for privatization. And alongside the government colleges, more and more licenses are being given for private colleges. And w at these private colleges, of course, uh, the funds are coming privately. The land is being given by the state uh, without any uh, money being taken for it. And there are no unions on private uh, colleges, no unions for staff, no unions for teachers, no unions for the students. It's a kind of depoliticized, neoliberal kind of educational experience. So it's awfully similar as what's being done to, say, electricity and water. The only difference is that because colleges were such a heartbeat of politics, they also had to attack politics on campus in the name of making students more professional and less political. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Any students learning through activities against the dominant forces in our world need to be, like, taken out, essentially. Um, you, In your ninth newsletter from the Tri-Continental, the title was, We Are Invisible, We Are Invin the Invincible, We will overcome. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about where this came from and some movements that you find um, this to be true for. Well, you know, I, I was in Caracas. It was the month-long anniversary. It was on the 23rd of February of this year. So a month after uh, the declaration by Juan Guaido to be uh, the president of Venezuela, you know, very curious thing that he so I went out in public and said, I am the president of Venezuela. And it appeared that that declaration was going to set off a direct coup attempt against the government of uh, the Chavistas led by Nicolas Maduro. That's what it looked was going to, you know, appeared to be uh, on the cards. Of course, the people of Venezuela resisted that attempt, the overthrow, and there's been protests happening, you know, Every day almost there's a demonstration, not only in Caracas, in Barcacimento, in the Amazon area, you know, all across the country. Well, you know, they, these protests have been so rarely covered by the international media. 
you know, in, including the media in neighboring South American states, like in Colombia and in Brazil. You know, nobody seems to care that the poor in Venezuela, for all the problems with the government, are behind the government, of, you know, almost 100%. And so, while I was at that demonstration, I saw an elderly couple dressed in, you know, sort of Chavista uniform, you know. They got hats with Hugo Chavez and Simon Bolivar and, you know, Evo Morales and Rafael Correa. You know, <laughs> they looked like they were sort of, you know, uh, models for Chavismo. And in their hands was a, a brown paper, you know, they cut out a, a piece of a box. So it was, you know, a brown cardboard thing they were holding on which, uh, with, with a pen they had written, we are invisible, we are invincible, uh, we shall overcome. And I found that a very moving statement uh, from this elderly couple. Why? Because they were saying, look, we're invisible, but here we are, you know, we are on the street, we exist. You know, you may not want us here, you may think we should disappear, but we're not going anywhere. And then it said, we're invincible. I mean, you know, they didn't look invincible. They looked very thin, uh, they looked frail, uh, they, but yet somehow they wanted to radiate this feeling of invincibility. And then, Venceremos, you know, the great slogan of the Cuban Revolution, we will overcome. I, I thought that was extremely moving, um, you know, that they were just holding and they were smiling. And when I came up to them to take a photograph, they almost pushed the sign out towards me just so I wouldn't miss it. Of course, the reason I went to photograph them was the sign, but they just wanted the sign there. They wanted to say, look at this, we wrote this. And when you say what movements are like this, you know, there are millions of movements around the world which are saying we are invisible, you know. I mean, nobody is covering them. Nobody pays them any heed. You know, in, in Calcutta, my, the town where I was born in West Bengal, India, just a month ago, a million people gathered in the center of town in a mass demonstration against the government. One million people. There was no coverage in the Western press, very little coverage in the Indian press. You know, they also say, we are invincible. I mean, sorry, we are invisible. But then... A million people gathered together. I don't know if you've ever been in a demonstration with a million people. million people gathered together. The only thing you can feel is we are invincible. You know, it's an incredible feeling of power to be surrounded by a sea of people. You look right, you look left, you can't see the end. And then, of course, we shall overcome. You know, we shall overcome is a very beautiful uh, statement because we shall overcome doesn't say whether to defeat you it's not a statement of hate. It's not a statement of, you know, uh, reversal of power that we're going to now put you down. I mean, we shall overcome means that this hideous situation is not permanent. In other words, they anticipate that they can make a future world. And, uh, you know, we can run down a list of, you know, a few thousand of these million movements around the world. But I think you get the point. The point is that there are people struggling in large numbers around the world, you know, whether it's uh, you know, people in North Africa trying to fight for food, uh, you know, uh, food cultures that they can stand behind, uh, big protests happening in Sudan, big protests happening uh, around the world, you know. They are also saying we are invisible, we are invincible, we shall overcome. And this is about the Amazon and one of the dossiers that was put out recently. Um right. The statement that the wealth of the earth generates the po poverty of humankind. I'm wondering if you could say more about what that means. 
So the statement, the wealth of the earth generates the poverty of humankind, comes in Eduardo Galeano's book, Open Veins of Latin America. You know, Galeano was a very great writer, happy to say that I spent many, many days uh, having great conversations with him. Uh, he was a charming man. Uh, you know, when he he died, there was a feeling of loss because he had such a great way of capturing, very simple way of capturing um, the kind of mood of our time. And, you know, that line, uh, I think, did capture the mood of the times in the 1970s. You know, this sense that um, wealth in the planet, the wealth, massive wealth in some parts of the world was somehow, uh, you know, uh, produced because people were getting poorer. It's what we call dependency theory. You know, that um, de underdevelopment is produced. There is a development of underdevelopment. Uh, underdevelopment isn't a condition. It's a process. It's happening to people. And so here, I think the reason why it was so important for our team in Brazil uh, to use that line is they also wanted to emphasize that, you know, um, the Amazon, which is really one of the most important and richest parts of the globe, you know, it's enormous uh, carbon sink, enormously important for biodiversity, enormously important for the planet and its future. Uh, I think they wanted to suggest that if the Amazon is destroyed, it's basically for private profit of mining companies, 60% of whom are headquartered in Canada, you know, Canada portrays itself, of course, as this great, um, you know, liberal country. is one of the most ruthless, uh, you know, exporters of mining firms, not only to the Amazon, but to places like Papua New Guinea, uh, Zambia. I mean, you know, they like to pretend that mining is done uh, by other people somewhere else and their hands are clean. You should see what Barrick Gold and others do in these parts of the world, what they're hiding, you know, from... Uh, plain sight, why the Western press doesn't cover Canadian mining companies and their ruthlessness, that's another question. But in the Amazon, it's these largely Western companies, Brazilian companies that are going to destroy, you know, this place that is so essential uh, to the planet's continuance. And they're going to destroy it basically uh, for profit, uh, not for anything else, not for humanity, not for improving the human condition, but for profit. And I think that's the essence of that line. You know, you have poverty uh, reproduced uh, in order to produce wealth for the few. In this case, you're willing to annihilate, uh, exterminate the planet, destroy the planet in order to make profit. So what is the point of your profit if at the end of the day the planet is destroyed? Is there anything else that you'd like And we're back. You're listening to Indigo Radio. And um, that was an interview with Vijay Prashad and Becca Polk. Um, we're coming to the end of our show. And so before we uh, leave you, we're just going to remind you about our weekend coming up. That's going to be totally exciting. It's the Stand Up Fight Back Education Conference. And beginning with Rebel Diaz's workshop and concert, that is going to be on Friday. So the workshop is from, is it 3 to 5? No, the workshop's from 4 to 5.30. 4 to 5.30 at the Cusick uh, conference room behind the high school. 
<laughs> and then followed by a concert at eight o'clock at the Brattleboro Memorial Public Library. We also want to thank <laughs> Star Latronica and the all her uh, staff at the the library. I've been in there a couple of times because I'll sometimes go and do work in there and. Um, they're so excited. I was just talking to Jeannie in there. She's one of the librarians. And um, she's really excited that there's going to be a hip-hop concert in the library. Uh, so that's going to be great. People We're should all come out. all excited. We, <laughs> so totally. Everybody's working on it. And we love you, Star. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we'll see you all there. And then, hold up. Sa- oh, we still have got it. So Saturday... Just a really quick rundown. 9.30 it begins at the Cusick Conference Room behind BUHS. There's lots of parking. We got Beehive Collective in the morning. 11 o'clock is Fred Magdoff. There's going to be lunch. And then there's three panels. Um, Star is actually on one of the panels, so that's exciting. She's on the first one called Education is Liberation. And the second panel is about privatization around housing, healthcare, and food. Uh, we got a local Amy Frost on that panel. Yeah. <laughs> Guilford. And then the last panel is Solidarity in the Struggle, Resisting Occupation and, and Supremacy. So that's going to round out the day. And we really, it's free. Um, we've, we really <clears throat> believe in having this open and free to all. So come on out. It's going to be some really great discussions. It's going to be awesome. Okay. Let's go out on a song. Thank you to Vijay Prashad for spending some time with us, too deserves some attention as a topic in its own right, but particularly in the last